Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is episode four. Today's guest is a naturopathic doctor, Dr. Brent Barlow. I wanted to invite him over for a chat because not everybody has heard of naturopathic medicine or maybe you've heard of it, but you're not really familiar with it. Naturopathic physicians tend to use holistic prevention and treatment of diseases and ailments. With Western medicine these days and our healthcare system, it's kind of difficult to spend a lot of time with your family doctor. I mean, they only get 10 to 15 minutes at maximum with a patient, so it's really hard for them to figure out why you're having symptoms that you're having, whereas a naturopathic doctor tends to spend around an hour with patients to try and really address why you're having issues that you're having. And they typically treat things like allergies, chronic pain, digestive issues, hormonal imbalances, adrenal fatigue, respiratory conditions, fertility issues, cancer, fibromyalgia, you name it. And I thought that this discussion was really great because as endurance athletes and people that work a lot and burn the candle at both ends, let's face it, most of our people in our society are are prone to do that because American society really tells us work more and work more and really our, our hormones and our body is what takes the toll. And in this discussion, we have a lot of talks about adrenal fatigue and how to manage that and also hormones and how that can not only affect you in your daily life, but how to optimize these things for better performance, whether you're a football player or an endurance athlete or a weightlifter. And I really love chatting with Dr. Brent Barlow because he's not just a naturopath. He is a fanatic when it comes to football. He played football all growing up and through school, and he plays locally on a league, and they just won their championship. And he also loves electronic vehicles. He's a big fan of Tesla and very knowledgeable about that. So I learned quite a bit about Tesla and how our automotive industry will be changing. That's a little bit of a a diversion from what our topic is today. And We did touch into quite a bit of topics you can expect to hear about vitamins and nutrition and acid versus alkaline. I know that's a a huge topic and what we need to eat in order to be more alkaline and why. Supplements in the supplement industry, candida, our gut flora, the adrenals, and the effects of cortisol and how hormones are made in the body. We also talk about Dr. Barlow's book called To Feel Well, Improve Your Digestive System, where the whole book goes into detail about how the digestive system works and the best possible ways to maintain and take care of your digestive system. He also covers in his book a lot of different digestive diseases and ailments that people have and how to treat it with diet. So I really enjoyed that part of his book and the types of foods that you should be adding in. And surprise, surprise, most of them are whole foods and plants. About 75% of your diet actually should be from plants because proteins, even plant proteins, are acidic. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Brent. I certainly did. He's extremely knowledgeable and a really fun guy to talk to. So let's go. Let's hit it off. Welcome, welcome, Dr. Brent Barlow to the Sonia Looney Show. And today we also have a co-host, my husband, Matt Iwanis. So thanks, guys, for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So uh, we are 
just sitting down. It's a beautiful spring evening. All the flowers are blooming. We decided to have a nice little beer. And tonight we're drinking the Green Flash Fearless 50 Saison style beer with rose hips and sweet orange peel. And we actually bought this at Trader Joe's and it's an exclusive beer to Trader Joe's. That's right. We uh, we often stock up on the cellar whenever we get a chance. Being up in Canada, our beer selection isn't as diversified. It's getting better as a lot of stuff in the States. So my understanding, Brent, is that you're not a huge beer connoisseur and this would be your first time having a Saison. It is correct. And there's always hope. So you, you, you don't know, you might have turned me on to something here in the right direction. And uh, this could be the first of many to come. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I hope you like it. It's, it's not a dark beer. It's a lighter beer, lots of flavor. It's a Belgian farmhouse style ale. So you'll get kind of that Belgian weedy flavor to it, but it's, it's mild. It's not a super, super strong flavor beer, but it's one of those beers that apparently the Belgians can drink all year round. So cheers. Cheers. Yeah, the Belgians, cheers. Awesome. So I found Dr. Barlow through a friend and I was wanting to go to a naturopath because I just, I like getting a baseline on what's going on in my, with my body. And typically when people go see a naturopath, there's something wrong. So when I went to see Dr. Brent, he's like, so there's nothing wrong. And I said, no, I just want to do all these tests because I want to just learn some stuff about my body. But a lot of people might not be actually aware of what a naturopath is or what a naturopath does. So I'd love to just have you discuss kind of your, your path. Yeah, absolutely. I like to define, you know, what I do and the, the kind of the paradigm that I work in, in in naturopathic healthcare as not so much that we dispense natural treatments or, or, you know, what is the end treatment that I might get, but more the approach. And, you know, you could be a medical doctor, a naturopathic doctor and kind of practice in the same paradigm or, in a, you know, a separate, more conventional paradigm. But it's more about what's the cause of the issue? What's the underlying mechanism? You know, let's, let's get a good handle of why these things are happening. And that's probably why we chuckled at the beginning as to, you know, what's wrong with you? Oh, there's nothing wrong. Well, you know, where's the diagnosis to, you know, to, to be made? Most people, when they come in, there's a few health concerns that they want to work on. And instead of looking at it and saying, well, here's the natural treatment for this symptom or the natural, you know, here's the herb for that, um, you know, disease that's going on. Why is this happening? You know, is this actually a hormonal imbalance that hasn't been diagnosed properly? Is it something that you're eating and trying to make that good diagnosis and then fill the gap that way. And usually that's going to be more of a natural recommendation because very few times does somebody have high blood pressure because of a deficiency of a blood pressure medication. You know, usually what's going on is there's something they're eating that's giving them more inflammation and and now their blood pressure goes higher. Uh, so if we can find out, you know, what are they eating that we can remove and then their blood pressure goes down, their body starts functioning better. That's more of how I like to work. And I think most naturopathic doctors work in, in that kind of paradigm. Right, so you're kind of looking for the cause of an issue instead of just trying to treat the issue, which is what a lot, not all, but a lot of medical doctors do. Yeah, yeah, and it, a lot of it's based on the time that we have with patients as well. You know, most of the time I'll sit down for an hour with a person on their first visit, try to go through things really thoroughly, find out about previous medical history, you know, not only what's going on currently, but is there predisposing factors that happened in childhood or teenage years that may be related to that. So if you're trying to handle things in like a five to 10 minute visit, you're kind of just going to be symptomatic. It, it, there's just not enough time to go into that kind of depth and find out, oh, the headaches. Yeah, they're, they're happening because of this whiplash and there's a little bit of ligament damage here and that's affected, you know, so on and so forth. You're just kind of like in that moment, okay, headaches, what's our best option for that type of headache? Cause it's always on this side. And you're just living in that symptom treatment. I always like to joke too, that 
you know, really, if you're treating symptoms, most drugs are better than natural treatments. It, you know, it's just all around. It's 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 hard to beat an opiate for pain management with with something natural. Like it's it, they're just it's just not strong enough. But if you're treating the cause and you're digging deeper, that's where you're you're probably going to get better results over the long term because you're you're getting to why this is happening in the first place. It sounds like it's a much, uh, very much a complementary practice to maybe traditional medicine, where it's yeah needing some stronger prescriptions for you know acute incidences, but. Like you said, if you can roll back the clock a bit and get there first, then you might not need that strong outcome or strong medication. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I like how you put it there. It's, it's uh, I think the future of healthcare is more integrative, where depending on your, your designation and your education, you, uh, we're all coming together. So from the, the conventional medical community, physiotherapy, chiropractic, uh, massage therapy, naturopathic, and, and, and so on, we all have areas that we can contribute to. So as a patient, you're kind of in the middle and you hire all these healthcare practitioners around you to give you their best input and, and their, their best advice. So, you know, if you're unfortunately in an accident and uh, you should probably go to the ER as opposed to, you know, come to, to me and we'll recommend you eat more salads. You know, that's <laughs> that's not the right treatment at that moment in time. So, you know, we're, we're really glad that there's the hospital there if something bad happens and conventional medicine is there. You know, I have a lot of patients where the damage to their knee is so far gone and they're at that right stage of life where a knee replacement makes sense. They do great knee replacements, you know, especially if you're 75 years old and overall in good health and, and so on. But let's say you're 55 years old and you're not bad enough for a knee replacement. And, and they're saying, well, we'll just wait until your knee is bad enough to do it. That's kind of a bleak prognosis there because you're thinking, well, I'm only 55 years old. So in 10 years, it'll be bad enough that I can now have that knee replacement. Like, what do I do for the next 10 years other than just suffer and maybe drink beer that's not of this quality? Um, <laughs> so, so it is very much integrative and complementary. I think there's the old thinking where you've got your conventional medicine butting heads with naturopathic, and we're certainly not trained that way in, in the naturopathic medical schools across North America. Uh, we want to be friends with medical doctors, and you know, we, we want to you know, do our best work, and they do their best work, and, and it all you know, work together that way. So yeah, I like the integrative approach. So all that said, when should you see a naturopath, and when should you go see your medical doctor? I think it's always in your best interest to have a medical doctor like on your team, you know, permanently. And jurisdiction to jurisdiction will probably differ this answer a little bit. So if we look at the province of British Columbia or any any province in Canada, and I would assume probably most states would be very, very similar, the medical doctors can get you, you know, certain testing. Like they can refer you to a cardiologist or, or a gastroenterologist who can then get you the MRI or the CT scan. So if we're dealing with issues that it would be really good to get that kind of imaging and that level of, of kind of of, uh, you know, workup. Most of the time, naturopathic doctors are not going to have access to that part of the public system or the hospital system in, in that case. And also probably from a financial perspective, we try to maximize your use of the conventional medical system. So basic blood work, like, you know, looking at where are my iron levels? You know, are, are they good? Are they not good? You really don't have to spend that kind of, you know, the, the money to go see a naturopathic doctor, then run a private lab to find, you know, something basic like that. So let's maximize the system to the best of its advantage. And if that involves really high level CT scans or something like that, then that's great. If it's more basic stuff, you know, that, that that's good that way. I would say the more long-term chronic the issues become, that's where the, the naturopathic doctor, I think, really brings a lot of value, especially if it's around the idea of digestion, hormones, a lot of the stuff that gets written off to age and stress. 
they're easy cop-out answers. And I've seen it at almost any age. I've seen it as young as people like in their early 30s saying, well, you know, I guess I'm 32 years old, so I'm supposed to kind of feel a little more tired than when I was in my 20s. And, you know, it kind of makes you laugh if you're over 32 years of age. You realize like, no, you know, just because you're you're 40 or you're 50 or you're, you know, age doesn't really start becoming a factor until I, we probably get, you know, into our 70s or, or a bit beyond. But it's an easy cop-out answer to say, well, I guess, yeah, I'm 50. Uh, that's why I should feel this way. Or I've been under so much stress. So that's why my digestive system doesn't work and will never work again. So if, if you're dealing with those type of chronic issues and you can tell there's no real medical diagnosis, there's no plan with your medical doctor, uh, those are some of the areas where it becomes apparent. I should probably see a naturopathic doctor and start working on this from that perspective. Yeah. And it sounds like you mentioned vitamins and nutrition. It sounds like from a, a treatment perspective, you're looking at nutrition and that type of thing to treat or, and to help prevent things and diseases that are happening. And I know that a lot of medical doctors barely get any training in, in nutrition. And I know that's starting to change with the whole lifestyle medicine movement, but 30 years ago, or even like 10 years ago, doctors maybe get one course in nutrition. Uh, what about naturopathic doctors? Yeah, and on the conventional medical side, I don't know that that's even really changing just yet. So there really isn't, you know, there's a lack of time in the clinical setting for most medical doctors to work with nutrition or work with these types of issues. So that's why they get caught up in the symptomatic treatment, but also in their education background, there's very little to no nutritional, you know, education. And, you know, maybe talking about iron deficiency counts as nutritional uh, training, but you and I are talking about different things. Like, you know, what should I be eating? And if I'm training for this type of event, should I eat differently than if I'm powerlifting and I'm, you know, trying to achieve a different body composition that way? You know, that's never really been the realm of the, the medical doctor unless they were to do, you know, different training that was part of their outside interest. And there's definitely medical doctors who, who can do that. But I like to think of supplements supplements like for the most part like vitamins and minerals and botanicals almost like supplemental to diet and lifestyle so like at that very foundation is you know what am i putting in my body from a food perspective how am i handling stress uh, how am i handling the workload how have i set up the boundaries in my life you know do i have a, a life set up where it's just not sustainable it's just too stressful it's crazy i've set myself up to fail or do i have things you know kind of set up in a good way that way am i largely eating the right types of foods and you know i take supplements myself but I'm not a huge pill pusher where we should all be taking a million different things. If we're eating good foods from good soils that have been grown in a good way and they're, they're close to us, we can get a lot out of our, our, our food that way. And then we can supplement on top of that where there's deficiencies. So I think supplements can be pretty vital and, and things like vitamin D. There's just no way living in Canada we can have optimal vitamin D without supplementing you know, with that. But uh, I think the foundation of uh, nutrition and, and lifestyle is the first key. Yeah, I've read that you need to take like 5,000 IU of vitamin D and even people that live in sunny places like in New Mexico or California, you have to be outside possibly without sunscreen for your body to synthesize vitamin D. So in terms of like anti-cancer and I mean, what are some other reasons why you'd want to add vitamin D and in, in what quantity? Yeah, you know what, vitamin D is so interesting. Most of the new textbooks refer to vitamin D as pro-hormone vitamin D. It actually fits the profile of a hormone. So we've all been raised to think of the, the term vitamin D, but it's really not a vitamin. Vitamins go back to that standpoint of uh, they're vital for protein synthesis, so vital amine, so vital for amino acid you know, uh, production. But vitamin D comes from the sun hitting our skin and turning cholesterol 
they were starting the process of cholesterol turning into vitamin D. So cholesterol is the, the building block of, of vitamin D and then the liver and the kidney finish the job off. So we don't need to, to eat vitamin D in order to, to get it. So it doesn't actually fit the profile of a vitamin from that perspective. And then from the other perspective of what does it do in the body, it also doesn't really fit the profile so much of a vitamin. It fits more of, of a hormone because one of the things with the immune system is white blood cells or various types of white blood cells will use it to send messages back and forth with other white blood cells. So that's where you're seeing so much of the um, the push towards vitamin D and the immune system or or with uh, you know cancer prevention or even some cancer treatment in that is that all seems to go back to the immune system and allowing the immune system to, to function better. And people with autoimmune conditions where the immune system, some wing of it has gone a little rogue and now it's attacking a healthy tissue in the body. So something like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or Hashimoto's thyroid, uh, where you're seeing how vitamin D might help out to normalize the immune response. So yeah, vitamin D is an interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because it really is more of a hormone than it is a, a vitamin in that regard. Interesting. I, I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah. So with supplements, I've read a lot of things how like the supplement industry is not regulated and there's different grades of supplements. And I remember when I saw you, I brought in the multivitamin and a few of the other supplements I was taking because there's some brands that are more reputable than others, but how would you recommend somebody goes along with picking a supplement if they want to add it in? Because I know that sometimes they don't even have what it says that it has. Yeah, uh, just buy everything from me and you'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, the reputation of the manufacturer is, is really huge. So, uh, I mean, a lot of it's based on trust, but that trust should be based on something real and tangible. So there's, there's third party testing and you can verify it. So you're not just taking the word of the uh, physician or the health food store that you're getting it from, but you know, you trust them. But if you at any point you were to check into it, you'd see there is third party testing and that third party testing is saying what's in it is in it and what's not supposed to be in it is also you know not in it so if we look at something even simple and basic like a fish oil does this company have third party testing to show that it does have what it claims for EPA and DHA and, and that profile of nutrients and it doesn't contain these types of uh, you know toxins and they've, they've been testing for mercury and, and things like that so in the naturopathic world you know most of us will carry supplements in the office and for most of us we use professional line products that you can clearly see the third party testing I've been to a lot of the manufacturers uh, facilities and you know chatted with them and, and seen what's going on as well too so I think that's key and, and we've had unfortunately areas where it's not as regulated where some patients think they're taking something like DHA where DHA in Canada is a is a prescription but in in the United States in most jurisdictions you can walk into a health food store and, and grab DHA and then bring it into Canada potentially and uh, we've had patients who thought they were getting that and then we retest them for their DHA levels and it was really clear that they were taking some kind of you know sugar pill or it just maybe the dose was way lower than than what it claimed on on the bottle that way so it can definitely mislead people and waste a lot of time and and you think you're doing something and you're really not so i think the third party testing is the crux of that answer to, to know that the manufacturers are having that done and it's outsourced and and it's almost like a, a financial audit where uh what happened in the oscars where the <laughs> price waterhouse cooper came in and, and said that uh you know this is all good this is this is how it's uh it's clear it's okay and, and and there you go. So I think maybe that highlights a little bit of a, an interesting point that we should discuss a little bit, which is for those people that live outside of Canada, their systems and their controls might be a little bit different than ours are. 
Um, in fact, our, our medical system, of course, is a lot different, especially than the United States in general. But are you aware of specifically how supplements might be treated differently in the United States versus how they might be treated in Canada? Um, is this where we get into politics now? No. <laughs> no, just the healthcare system, which I think is probably... Yeah. Also, also involved in politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I have a lot to add to that because most jurisdictions won't have like specific regulations around health food products. In Canada, there's a natural product number on products or a drug identification number on most of the products. So almost everything we carry in our office would have one of those two designations to have some level of assurance that it's been approved, the claims on it are, are approved as well too. Um, but I wouldn't be able to add to that, like if we compared, let's say New Mexico versus California, what, what are the, the variations in that way? So I think part of the answer really does come down to that trust. And if let's say you're in Santa Fe and you're seeing a naturopathic doctor in that city, just knowing you can ask those simple questions. How did you choose what you're dispensing? Because most of us, like myself, will have a certain number of companies that make sense to, to carry their products. Uh, you know, if you have too many, it's too cumbersome and uh, it's just too hard to manage and everything. And if you don't have enough, then you probably are lacking some of the quality. Uh, you know, I couldn't imagine one company makes every product I'd ever want to use for patients and I can just rely solely on, on that one company. So you're going to have some number of probably between five and 10 companies that that's good. So just sitting there and asking your naturopathic doctor, I'm not trying to be picky here. I'm not trying to put you too much on the spot and say that you're carrying shoddy products, but you know, it's important to me to know about the quality. I'm a really quality first type of person. Can you tell me a bit about how you chose, you know, these companies, what gives you peace of mind that, that this is good quality and what's in this one is good there and, and uh, watch and see the answer. And, and that, that will give you either peace or, or, or the opposite. And you'll know which direction to go after that, uh, that answer. Nice. And you mentioned DHEA. And is that for hormones or I'm not really familiar with that? Yeah, DHEA, a lot of people refer to it as the mother hormone. So in uh, the human body, virtually all sex hormones and stress hormones are made in uh, two main spots, in the uh, ovaries or testes, depending if you're male or female. And then the second spot will be the adrenal glands. And uh, the raw material for all of those sex hormones and stress hormones is actually cholesterol. So you can even, let's tie everything to vitamin D today. And I'm sure beer drink is good for vitamin D levels. We'll, we'll find a study so, to support that at some point. That's right. We're yeah. doing it right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most people think of cholesterol as just, uh, you know, cardiovascular, and they don't really realize that it's the building block for uh, every sex and stress hormone. So uh, cholesterol will be converted down the line into uh, DHEA. And in a lot of jurisdictions, especially uh, Canadian provinces and uh, the federal government in Canada considers DHEA a federally controlled substance. So it, it, it's considered a hormone, you know, here. And and um, one reason it's considered a hormone is if you take it, you'll, you'll to some degree uh, suppress your own production of it. So that's one way you can you can loosely define a hormone. If I take it, I, I produce less of it. So think a bit of, of a hormone there. And then how it trickles down is in order for us to have testosterone, it had to come from DHEA. In order for us to have adrenaline or cortisol, it had to come from DHEA. So it becomes a really important clinical marker for us because if DHEA is, is suppressed, then we know there's going to be a ripple effect. There, you know, you're not going to be able to produce optimal levels of some or all of the, the, the sex or stress hormones as time goes on. And typically what we'll see in a clinical picture is 
if your, your DHA is low, is your stamina. So things get harder as the day goes on. Things get harder as the week goes on. If you had a Christmas vacation and then let's say a spring break, as you get further away from Christmas, you're thinking, when is spring break coming? I, I need, you know, I just, I'm having trouble, you know, with that stamina. So from an endurance athletic, you know, perspective, you would want to be in that top 75% of, of that normal physiological range. So it's never about getting us above normal physiology and then getting into sports enhancement in a illegitimate type of way, but helping to be in that optimal you know level so that when you're doing endurance uh, competitions and also the training that has to go into that, you have enough of that raw material to then turn into uh, testosterone and progesterone and estrogen and and then your cortisols and adrenalines and and also the blood pressure hormones as well too. So so yeah, DHA trickles down into, into that in a huge huge way. So you said the uh, the building block is cholesterol. Is there any implications for either high cholesterol or low cholesterol with hormone levels then? Yeah, there, there tends to be. And, uh, you know, one, one thing to look at is, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of patients who seek naturopathic care are in the perimenopausal to menopausal years. So let's say 45 to 65 year old female patients. And we're seeing more and more, uh, you know, research come out that your the cholesterol may be the total cholesterol may be elevating a little bit as DHA is is sort of dropping and we're in this sort of perimenopausal menopausal you know shift and is this has nothing to do with cardiovascular and is this actually a lack of utilizing uh, cholesterol and converting it into DHA and and then trickling down uh, into into the hormones so I think we're a little young on that right now to to really paint too broad of a, a picture, but it's a very legitimate question when you see a patient whose total cholesterol is going up and, and they're also having sex or stress hormone decline and say, well, is there a problem with production? And for female patients in that category, the ovaries are in the retirement process. So they're doing less and less of that hormone production. They're shifting that over to the adrenal glands. And so it makes sense that at that point in time, there may be a disconnect where the adrenal glands are just not using the raw material properly of, of cholesterol and it's just sort of stockpiling a little bit that way. Obviously, there's a lot of other complicating things that could be involved with, is the liver just producing too much? Is it not breaking you know, down enough? But that's one that's gaining a lot of interest from a hormone perspective. Yeah, in terms of adrenals, I mean, I know that in the endurance community, adrenal fatigue is a major topic and something that people aren't super familiar with. And I know myself, I never really thought of my adrenals until a friend of mine basically collapsed from adrenal fatigue and she was actually hospitalized because she was burning the candle at both ends so badly that she just couldn't even function anymore. So I know that when I did my test, there was some hormone levels that I was actually a little bit lower in and I haven't actually spent the time to study that. But I know that personally, I do these seven day mountain bike races. I train anywhere from 12 to 24 hours a week. I'm traveling two weeks per month. And then on top of that, if I'm including training, I'm working like 12 hours a day, sometimes seven days a week. So I know that there is some adrenal stress there and I'm still kind of unclear on how I can support my adrenals and how much I need to support my adrenals. And I know that that's a common question and something that people often think about. And we take things like ashwagandha or looking at these adaptogens, hoping that maybe that gives you adrenal support. But what are some ways that endurance athletes can just kind of support their adrenals? Yeah, great question. Maybe to start back at the beginning, because I do like to ramble on, is to look at 
um, can we at least agree that the adrenal glands exist in the body and, and they, they function? So, you know, not to get too critical of the conventional medical system, but one of the things that would lead you towards a naturopathic doctor would be I'm having, I'm either going through this type of training and I can feel the toll it's taking on me, or I'm living a, you know, a normal day-to-day -day type of life. I'm a weekend warrior. I like to train for, for certain things. And I feel like this is not sustainable. I'm kind of, I'm wondering if I have adrenal fatigue, you know, what is adrenal fatigue? And in the conventional system, it seems like your adrenals are fine unless you have Cushing's disease or you have Addison's disease. And those are really the ends of, of the spectrum. And if you're anywhere in between, you're, you're okay. There, there, there's no type of issue. So for anybody who's a little skeptical around adrenal fatigue, I totally get it because it's one of those diagnoses that can just get thrown out there and like, does everybody really have adrenal fatigue? Are we maybe over, <laughs> you know, overstating it? So I, I get some of the skepticism there, but if, if we also don't respect what the adrenals actually do and how much you know role they take on, then we're probably not going to help a lot of people that, that we should help. So we were talking earlier before the podcast about our, our mutual love of coffee, you yes. know, and, uh, you know, I enjoy a good espresso uh, Americano, you know, I, I forget, are you more of a latte person or more of an uh, espresso type uh, person? I do. So for the American friends out there, so Matt is, my husband is Canadian and Whenever we go to the United States, he, he's got this little Canadian accent, just like you do. And when he orders Americano, baristas often look at him like quizzically, like, what the heck did you just say? And to me, it sounds pretty similar, but it's uh, we say Americano. I actually like the Canadian pronunciation. Canadians also say pasta and sorry. So if you're looking to make fun of some Canadians, that's that's something you can do. So I'm, I'm definitely more of an Americano drinker, but lately I've started getting into almond milk lattes because sometimes whenever, because I travel all the time, if I know that the quality of the espresso isn't gonna be very good, because I'm, I'm stubborn, I'll get some almond milk in there just to kind of dilute the, the taste of a bad roast of espresso. <laughs> do, do you need a coffee sponsor now? Is that, we, we should uh, bring one on board? <laughs> yeah, uh, I would love a coffee Let's put that, We'll put that out there the yeah, universe so. and see yeah. what I can do. Okay. Coffee, North yeah. Vancouver, if you're listening, <laughs> I'm waiting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so to tie this back to that original question, that, that was a really, really good question there, is if you're skeptical as to the idea of adrenal fatigue, adrenal exhaustion, doing adrenal support, then really ask ourselves, well, how does coffee work? Because if you believe in coffee or you feel the effects of coffee, you must inherently then uh, accept the fact that the adrenals can, you know, either do some better work or do some, you know, lower functioning type of work. Because caffeine itself doesn't really do anything inherently, you know, to our body to give us energy. What has to happen is it goes to the adrenal glands and it causes a release of adrenaline and cortisol and, and stress hormones. So the kind of benefits that we enjoy with uh, coffee and, and caffeine are sort of coming from the caffeine, but they're coming because the caffeine is unlocking the body's own chemical uh, you know cascade and we're going to get some dopamine rises as well too and uh, and, and things like that so that, that first step of the the answer I guess is acknowledging that the adrenals can pre perform better or they can perform worse there, there's a spectrum there and the better you, your adrenals are able to handle stressors the better you're going to be able to respond so I'm a big believer in the authentic self so uh, I think all three of us and the three people who are listening, I mean the 3,000 people who are listening, 
you know, are probably all beautiful, authentic people. There's things that are core to us that we've always loved, we always will love. We have a zest for, for these types of things. If your adrenals start to go down because uh, we've maybe been overdoing it or there's been some unfortunate stressors, uh, you know, going on for long periods of time, you'll tend to find yourself withdrawing from some of the things that you love. And that may be from a high-end athletic perspective where you feel like, I, you know, I love this sport, but I'm having a difficult time training for it. I just, I'm losing the love of it. There's other things in life that I have to take care of. There's just only so much energy to go around, you know, and it's not that you don't want to do it anymore in your brain and in your soul, but you're lacking fuel in which to carry it through. That will often cause a lot of depression or just lack of self-confidence, or you start to wonder, am I, am I getting old? Is my career over? Uh, is my, you know, my, my weekend warrior stage now moving to the next level where, you know, I'll, I, I can just golf and that's that's the extent of my sport. Not that there's anything wrong with golf, but uh, you know, I think we're we're talking amongst a, a, a lot of high-level athletes here who want to be out there doing a lot of you know biking and, and running and, and endurance type of stuff. So golf is cool, but not exactly what we want to be doing right now at, at that level. So acknowledging that that problem can exist, acknowledging that we can kind of chip away in a negative way at the adrenals, or we can start chipping away in a positive way and basically filling that, that back up. To relate it back to DHEA, if your DHEA is compromised, then you can support your adrenals with things like ashwagandha and rhodiola, uh, B vitamins and, and vitamin C and so forth. But if you're, if you're lacking the raw material, then the adrenals can only do so much with what they've got. And so we have to make sure that we're, we're also supporting the ability for uh, DHEA to be there and flow through the system. We find that testing through saliva or urine samples are a much better way to assess the, the adrenals than, uh, than just a, a, like a one-time blood draw for cortisol levels or, or things like that. So often in my practice, testing is the key. And you mentioned that earlier about you know testing for the adrenal glands. The adrenals are also reliably unreliable. So Matt, you would relate to this in the kind of the financial realms of life where if you know people who are day traders, they're probably really stressed out because if they could make a ton of money on one day and then the next day they could you know lose it all and the adrenals are kind of like day trading where some days you wake up geez my adrenals are great this is fantastic let's go let's have a good training session and then some days you wake up and you're just in the tank and you don't know you know what's going on so when we're working with somebody to help repair their adrenal glands if you measure them day by day it's the reliably unreliable and, and even week by week, you can have a good week and a bad week, but we'll see people's adrenals month by month typically go in that right direction. And you'll see well-rounded benefits like more energy physically, more energy from the emotional perspective, easier focusing and concentrating, kind of a better attitude, outlook on things as well. And my favorite thing to hear from patients, and I hear this definitely at least a, a couple times a week, is I feel like I'm getting myself back. So when you really get a right diagnosis and you, and you start to help somebody as their adrenals comes back, it just feels like this is me. Like I'm 42 and, uh, and I'm not 42 yet. So no, it's not me, <laughs> but you know, I'm 42 and I thought the reason I'm so tired and everything was because I was 42, but it ends up it wasn't because I'm 42. It's because this system wasn't working so well and we've been working with it for, you know, three months and I, could, I just felt myself coming back to life. And now I'm doing things that I love to do and I'm, I'm doing them in a way that I could do when I was 32. And so cool. Age is not the, the reason that this, this was happening. I think it's interesting when we first uh, did some tests together, it would have been about a year ago, a year and a half ago maybe, and 
I was in a similar situation with working pretty long hours, traveling for work and traveling with Sonia to go to races. And you end up, you know, having long days and you jump on your bike and you're so excited to finally get a ride. And then 25 minutes later, I was just wanting to turn around and go home. I'm thinking like, I, I'm exhausted. I don't want to do this. And there's this disconnect from where you are mentally and what you can actually accomplish physically. And you're, you know, something's wrong. You just don't know what, what's happening. So. I think a couple of points come to mind is sort of the idea of a baseline and whether you're a performance athlete trying to, to get another five or 10% increase in performance or optimize your performance or whether you're, you know, a weekend warrior or someone who's working and just trying to optimize their, when they have that half an hour or an hour or two hours exercise to optimize it. The con, when you go to the traditional medical system, it's, it's hard to convince your family doctor that, that you need a baseline because it ties up medical resources and they don't run all the kind of tests that you would run. So, and when we ran that test for me, it, it wasn't specifically adrenals. It was, uh, I believe, low iron was part of it amongst a few other things. But yeah, I think just you can really benefit from working with a naturopath, even if you're not sick or even if you're not a top level athlete, just if you're, you know, quote, the average individual just trying to get the most out of their, their daily life. And this is the point in the show where we get your file out and we just go through all, all your, your details and what's <laughs> wrong with Matt. Yeah. Well, that's going to that's gonna take much longer then. <laughs> Can we just break the But yeah, those are you know really great points. Often in conventional medicine, we wait till a problem is there uh, before we treat it. And so like at the beginning of the show, you mentioned you came in and I was a little, you know, taken back to the fact that everything is good. You know, we're, we're here for a baseline check because, you know, that doesn't happen to me once a month. Like that happens far fewer, like maybe three, four times a year where somebody truly is all around pretty healthy. We just want to get a bit of a baseline. And I think for some natural like doc doctors, it would be more common, but for whatever reasons, you know, my style of practice, people are coming in with some, some key health concerns and they want to, you know, initially get momentum on those and then it may turn into more uh, you know advanced high level so let's optimize you know what, what's going on but Matt you mentioned baseline and I think that's great I mean how many times have I seen a patient come in and let's say late 30s early 40s and we look and see okay well what's your previous medical history what are your you know anything show up in the past as far as low iron history you know basic blood work oh I, I haven't had that done since I was a teenager and I remember my mom took me in because I had like acne and we wanted to check some things out so you know a lot of people and this might be more of a guy thing than than, than a female thing but you know many people through their 20s and 30s don't go see the doctor we don't have any tests done we have no baseline so if let's say we hit a milestone birthday of like 40 where a lot of us are like oh i turned 40 this year i think i'll check some stuff out see see how i'm going i'll get a baseline there it's sort of a baseline but we might have missed an opportunity uh when i was you know 25 years old or 30 years old and just to sort of compare because potentially your level of iron has dropped significantly or it's stayed the same but if we have one test at, at 40 then we don't really know well where, where did it transition and so one reason that's important is something as basic as iron let's say that for the past you know 10 years your uh, ferritin level which is the storage of iron and then your red blood cell count hemoglobin hematocrit and, and those types of markers let's say that we've been monitoring them and they've all kind of stayed in this realm and then over the course of a year it's dropped from like really optimal down to like low level normal well we would actually see the velocity of the drop and we'd say, well, hang on, you know, for the last five, 10 years, 
you've been cruising along at these levels and this is how you felt. You're still in the normal range right now, but this is a significant drop from, from where you were. This is probably a big reason as to why you feel that way. If we hadn't done some of that testing along the way, we just get a new test right now. Well, you know, you're in the normal reference range. It, things look fine, they, they look good. Uh, from an athletic perspective, we may look at that and say, okay, they're fine, but they're not optimal, so we should increase them. But we, we still would be missing information that told us there was a, a drop and the relative change could be as meaningful as somebody who's actually in the in the low range. So if you're used to being in a certain level and then you drop down to another uh, zone of that level, you could actually be hit just as hard as somebody who actually went from kind of low normal down into out of bounds. Yeah, so we were talking about caffeine and I know that a lot of us love coffee and love caffeine and there's multiple topics that we all talk about with caffeine and performance in sports. And I know there's tons of studies that say that Caffeine actually helps with your concentration during sports and helps with kind of energy because it makes us hyper and want us to go crush everybody. But some of my colleagues, they actually will, won't have any caffeine leading up to an event because they're trying to make themselves more sensitive to caffeine on the day of their event. So there's that. And then I also wanted to ask you, there are some days where it's like, I have a coffee and I'm halfway done and I'm just like, ah, I'm so hyper. And there's other days where I'll have like three coffees or whatever, and I get more tired when I drink coffee. So why is it that certain days your uh, caffeine will affect you in different ways than it does on another day? And does caffeine sensitivity increase with leaving it out? I think leaving it out for most people will increase their sensitivity. So yeah, if you take a little caffeine vacation and it's hard to know, like for some people that could be as, as little as, a, you know, two, three days, then they have, uh, you know, that next cup of coffee and it kind of gives them that lift that they maybe have been acclimatized to and they haven't been, been getting before. So yeah, I think the answer to that is, is pretty clear for most people. You take a bit of time off coffee or caffeine, you're probably going to get a, a bigger wave of uh, whether you consider benefit or whether you consider it maybe a little bit too, you know, too much, but you'll probably feel the caffeine a little bit more and then I think the answer to why do I feel caffeine and coffee more on some days than other days kind of goes back to that fundamental concept of the adrenals being reliably unreliable day to day and a lot of times what happens with the adrenal glands is when you have to deal with stuff they're going and uh, especially for people who are as healthy as we all are here and, and probably most of the audience as well too is the adrenals can plow through things and we start picking up problems in the aftermath so how are you doing in the recovery after the endurance event? How are you doing after, boy, it's been a week long of just overworking and then we traveled to New Zealand and then we came back and boy, we've been pushing the envelope you know, too much. I was able to plow through it and feel pretty good during, but now I'm on the couch for a week just recovering and, and that feels a little wrong. I shouldn't have to you know, recover uh, you know, that long. So some things that could make explain why are the adrenals reliably unreliable and why did I feel some days that my adrenals are, are worse than others could come back to just being basic nutrition concepts. It's really, really stressful on the adrenals if your blood sugar goes down. And so if we go too long in between meals, um, especially when we're not exercising, if we're talking about like just during training periods and, and normal day-to-day -day life, we get busy, we miss lunch, or we have you know six hours in between lunch and dinner, 
As soon as blood sugar starts to go down, then the adrenals get called into action uh, to make adrenaline and cortisol. And these hormones, one of the effects they have is they're gluconeogenic. And so gluco meaning sugar, neo meaning new, and genic to produce. So whenever the, the blood levels of sugar start to go down too far, our body is, is saying, we have to get sugar to the brain, we have to do something, and the liver is gonna kick in gluconeogenic hormones, and the adrenal glands are gonna kick in uh, those as well too. So those types of uh, sporadic eating, too long in between meals, maybe too much sugar, spike the blood sugar, then it crashes really, really hard in the adrenal glands. So potentially part of the answer could be, yeah, I was on an empty stomach. Now every time I get hit hard with coffee, I kind of didn't have the best breakfast or I had too little protein. It was mostly carbohydrates, so blood sugar went up and down. Then I had a cup of coffee and whoa, that, that didn't feel you know quite well. Similarly to coffee too late at night, um, our cortisol levels, for the most part, will probably be about 20 times lower around bedtime than they will be in the morning. So there'll be a, a transition and some people can't have coffee afternoon and some people can have it you know, later and later, but there's usually a point in time in which a coffee past this point is gonna now stimulate hormone production in a bad way and it's gonna feel maybe icky. We may have a, a tough time articulating why do I not feel good with this cup of coffee at this point in time, but it'll have some kind of negative effect that way. Yeah, and I noticed that for my, whenever I did my hormone testing, it sounds like it was pretty normal that my cortisol was higher in the morning. So you had recommended, hey, like you might want to do your training in the morning for better quality training. And I know a lot of people listening to this podcast, they work a regular, you know, nine to five or nine to seven job. So is it, so it's more optimal for people to get up early in the morning and train to have generally better effects from training or does it really matter? Yeah, I think if you were like a professional athlete where finances were not part of the issue, day-to-day -day life wasn't part of the issue, and if you look at a lot of NFL athletes, NHL athletes, that's actually where the research is showing is doing the training early in the morning. You know, Tom Brady is one of those love him, hate him type of guys. So uh, there'll be a lot of listeners who love him and a lot of listeners who hate him. But if you look at his training regimen and how well thought out it is, and one aspect to look at is what time does he train? And he turns 40 this year and, you know, not too long. And, you know, five-time Super Bowl champion. And I mean, yeah, he's only a quarterback, which is one step above a kicker. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Weren't you a quarterback? So, I, yes, I was. Yeah, yeah. And I had a damn good game this weekend too, so I'm still gloating on that. But, uh, you know, so athletically, you know, you're not running like you are as a receiver and you're certainly not, you know, endurance like you're doing in your training and in your competitions and everything. But, you know, the early morning, that is when the cortisol is high. So that's a good wave to ride. It also promotes better sleep. And one aspect that's so easily lost, because in a lot of things in life, if I just work harder, the results will come. But with the adrenal glands and with hormone balance, working harder is often a way that plows you under and actually is a defeating uh, you know, type of strategy. And one of the ways we pick up that people are overtraining is they stop sleeping well. They're just waking recurrently through the night. So if you've ever noticed that I've increased my training regimen, I'm plateauing with my results, I'm waking at two in the morning, then again at 3.30, then again at five in the morning, I'm just not having that good quality sleep. It's really worthy of thinking, am I just pushing it too hard? Am I, am I training too hard? Or is my am I working and I'm training and I'm just trying to take on too much and I'm really motivated, but I've, I've got to you know, work a bit smarter and not just uh, you know harder in those situations. So 
I'm not a big fan for the overall health perspective and achieving your goals of really working out late in the evening because it, it takes a while for that stress hormone levels to kind of drop down and then have good quality sleep. So I think if you could sleep in later and just shift your circadian rhythm later, that might be one strategy to kind of work around that if you're doing, let's say, shift work or, or, or things like that. But if you could, if you're kind of a nine to five type of person, it's probably worth your while to convince yourself to be, you know, waking up at, you know, five in the morning or something like that, doing your training before work, it will probably have overall benefits that way. Yeah, I need to start training earlier in the morning. Like I, I have 100% freedom to make my schedule, but there's a lot of work tasks that I do between all, all the demands of social media content, managing sponsorships, writing, planning my next trip. So I always end up getting on my bike it's lately it's been at three o'clock every single day on the nose sometimes even four o'clock and i've been finishing training at six o'clock and i know that's not ideal and know with matt he's been working really hard and you and maybe you can talk about this matt of your challenge with training and getting up in the morning and training versus training in the evening yeah absolutely the the difference for me is pretty substantial uh, at one point sonia was really focusing on on her schedule as one of the courses she was actually doing but uh so as a household, we decided we're going to start going to sleep a little bit earlier. And what that allowed me to do was get up earlier and train. And so not only did I have a, a better outcome with training, because many times at the end of a long day, like many people, you're tired. You don't put your best effort in. If you have an interval workout or something planned, that all of a sudden becomes an easy ride or an easy ride becomes, oh, I'll take a day off. So the training was better. And then at work, the, the energy level and focus of work was just that much higher throughout the day. Mood levels tend for whatever reason, there maybe is a hormone component to that, but mood levels were better all the way through the day. And then coming home, it's a nice cycle to finish your day because you come home and you're sort of finished. You can have family time and you can unwind on a normal schedule and then continue on that rhythm. Whereas other times, whether it was mountain biking or playing basketball, having a late game at nine o'clock, playing basketball until 10, 30 or 11, you get home and there's just no way you're gonna fall asleep until one o'clock. And then the next day you gotta get up and, and go to work and you just feel thrashed. So yeah, having that, the rhythm of going to bed earlier so you can get up and train earlier is a better outcome for training and just productivity in, in your day. So, But I, I would be interested to know impacts on mood if that gets affected by the time of the day you're training based on hormone level. Yeah, I think, I think that is a big part of it. And you can kind of separate this uh, interwoven component, which is I've, uh, I'm waking up earlier, I'm getting my cortisol into higher levels, which is, which is, you know, is natural. And I think everything that we talk about, we should step back and say, we're never talking about trying to jack any kind of hormone level above like normal healthy physiology. So kind of health first and with athletic performance. If it's, it's kind of like from a weight loss perspective, there's healthy ways to lose weights and, there, and there's unhealthy ways to lose weight. There's healthy ways to train optimally and then there's unhealthy ways. So we're always trying to do it in, in the healthiest way because uh, hopefully we're all going to have a long, happy, healthy life and we're not going to look back and be like, oh boy, yeah, I achieved some things, but you know, the, the toll that it's taken now that I'm 50 is, uh, I guess 50 is a bad age to be at. <laughs> you know, we don't want to be there. So yeah, we're 32. Yeah. So I think that a big part of it too is you get those hormone levels, you know, going right. The endorphins are going all day long. The circulation. Circulation is one of those simple but profound things. A lot of us just don't wake up with really great circulation. So, you know, some people will wake up and have a routine of, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have a hot tub or something, like I hop in the hot tub every morning or I've hop in the pool in the hot tub and, you know, back and forth. That may not be a luxury that we all have, but, you know, why do I feel better after a shower? Why do I feel better after, after hopping in the pool or the hot tub? 
I didn't particularly exercise, but you're getting blood moving. And so that is well proven to release endorphins, release things like hormones like dopamine and serotonin and kind of maximize those daily circadian rhythms. And we'll see that a lot too in, you know, in a lot of North America, we lack daylight. And, you know, we spend a lot of time down in the, in the desert in California. And, you know, when you, we go there at Christmas time, I mean, it's still pretty much pitch black at five o'clock at night, you know, and, and you think we're going that far south and we're, we're going to have extra daylight, but, you know, not really. So uh, here in Kelowna, what is it, pitch black at 4.30? Four, probably. Four o'clock, you know, it's, yeah. you can see like around, you know, December 21st or whatnot, it's two o'clock hits and you can already see the darkness, you know, sort of, you know, turning around. Yeah, you want to be off yeah. your bike by that time. Like one time Matt and I were coming back from a ride and it was like only three o'clock or something and we were riding down, we had ridden up to the trail and we were riding back down and it was so cold. It's like the coldest I think I've ever been or maybe one of... And we couldn't make it home. We had to like stop into a Tim Hortons, which is like a Dunkin' Donuts basically. And we had to just get warm in there. And we were only like 10 minute ride from our house. And it was just so cold at just three o'clock in the afternoon. And that, that has been a crazy adjustment moving here. Yeah, so when you think about maybe in the winter training type of season as well too, like right now we're recording this in, in the beginning of spring, I guess uh, in April here, and we're starting to see this wave of extra daylight. And it's a late spring this year. So we haven't had a lot of, you know, summer type of weather coming into the spring, but there's a wave of energy that typically comes with that extra daylight uh, at the beginning of the day, the end of the day as well, and, and everything. But you know, what do we do in like November, December, January, February? And so, you know, getting out there, forcing you to do things, I think is a good strategy. But part of the benefit is just circulation. And uh, you know, some people before training will, will actually you know hop in the hot tub, warm their body up, get that circulation going. They've had maybe a pre-workout uh, you know type of smoothie or shake or you know something that way, and they need a little bit of time to digest it anyway before they have that that morning exercise. So the hot tub or a shower, something like that, gets the blood flowing, gets uh, you know things going. Now they're set in the right uh, you know mental framework, but also the physiology is set in a better way to maximize the athletic performance. And then I think the other component too that you were talking about is if I've, I've been able to adjust myself to buy into the fact I'm a morning person now, because some people are not inherently morning people. Uh, that might be shocking to hear. I'm definitely not a morning person. <laughs> you know, not everybody's kind of born and raised a you know, morning person. So you can start gaining a confidence. And I'm a big believer when it comes to, you know, training and actual, you know, time for competition of how confident am I at that moment when it really counts? Because you can do all the right things leading up. But if you're, if there's kind of like that doubt there and that lack of confidence, you know, your body's there, but your mind's not there and your mind is needed to really get the most out of your, your, your body. So why do you feel better? Well, I'm achieving my goals. I'm waking up, I'm doing my stuff. And now I'm, I'm more relaxed at the end of the day. Uh, I, I'm just, I've got my stuff done. So there's sort of this like positive snowball going down the hill that, that you know, you start your day with something that uh, is important to you and then everything else becomes more achievable and your, your day becomes just better all around. And then you can enjoy a good glass of beer after your, your day or <laughs> potentially a glass of wine. You've earned in, um, when we were, uh, for a few years, we were ski patrollers at uh, my wife and I, and that's how we met. We lived in a small town called Invermere and the ski hills uh, panorama. And we met there working at the ski patrol. And so people out in the back country, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of people in Colorado and, and in Utah and, and uh, people that you know down there who are, you know, big into back country, you know, type of stuff. And, and maybe a little anti-riding chairlifts. And there's this idea of earning your turns. 
You know, like I skinned up the mountain, I've earned that fresh ride, you know, down that way. And there's a, it's a big thing. So maybe an element of why you feel a bit better when, as part of this changing in the regimen is I've earned this beer at, at five o'clock when I got home today. You know, I've earned this relaxation. I've earned this family time because I got my stuff done at five in the morning. Or at noon, just depends on <laughs> how good a session you had that <laughs> So you mentioned weight loss and there's all kinds of crazy things people are doing with their diet because they've lost weight. Like I've seen people doing intermittent fasting, like doing like ketosis, which is not good for you to put your body into a state that's not sustainable just to lose weight. So what is a healthy way to lose weight? Because I know that as cyclists specifically, like people are always obsessed with their strength to weight ratio and all of us are always... Like there's the joke that cyclists are jealous of one another if one gets sick and loses weight. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really messed up headspace actually. Yeah. So in terms of weight loss, I mean, that's something that's on my mind before certain events if there's tons of climbing. So what's a, a healthy way to lose weight and a healthy like length of time to lose weight? Yeah, great. I mean, it's such a simple question on some level. It's a, it's a very it's fundamentals, maybe the more right way to say it. It's fundamental, but it can be a very difficult answer. I think a huge part of the answer is for people who are doing the right things on paper. You know, it looks like the amount of calories coming in makes sense for the amount of exercise going out. I'm training at the right times of day. I'm, I'm sleeping the, the right times of day. So we make sure all that basic, basic stuff is there because you don't want to skip over that. So just make sure that's all there. Usually the people who come into the office who were working on that type of stuff, that's already taken care of. So part of my job is just to make sure that we're not missing something so simple that, uh, oh crap, I can't believe we've been working on this for six months and you're eating 8,000 calories a day, but you're, you know, clearly only need 5,000 calories a day. So whoops, sorry. Uh, sorry, I wasted six months of your time. We, we, it looks like we should work on that. You know, let's go back to step one there. So let's make sure we don't miss something really basic that way. But usually where I find the success comes is there's something physiologically in the body that's messing up the metabolic rate. It could be a, a thyroid condition that's undiagnosed. It could go back to DHA and hormone imbalances, excess cortisol at night. You know, overtraining is another one. So we'll see that I'm not sleeping well, I'm plateauing in my gains, whether it's for strength training or endurance. And I'm also kind of putting on a bit of a, you know, midsection or something. Well, if cortisol is staying too high at night relative to where it should be, not only do you sacrifice your REM cycles and you just don't get as good a quality of sleep, but it directly puts weight on especially you know in, in the midsection and it it's so frustrating because you think why am I not losing weight and why am I putting I've never had this before get this thing out of my belly Stupid, huh? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, it could come down to the fact that I'm just I'm, I'm working too hard I'm putting too much pressure on and I'm not working smarter and I'm working harder and I'm actually self-inducing a bit of a hormonal uh, dysrhythm one of the uh, you know big ones too that we see is some high-level athletes have thyroid conditions that you would never catch with basic thyroid testing uh, like a TSH, uh, even testing their T3 or T4 levels, which are the actual thyroid hormone that's circulating in the body. But we'll see uh, some patients who have Hashimoto's thyroid or other autoimmune thyroid conditions, and their levels are just kind of up and down. And, and if you just randomly test them, your, your odds are you're going to catch them in, a, in sort of a semi-normal you know type type of way. So if there's some Something physiological going on that's messing up the metabolic rate that's usually what we focus on because we make sure that you're doing what looks like the right things on paper things make sense that they should be working but they're not working so what is that obstacle what's what's messing you know things up that way
Yeah, a big source of frustration for me is that I do like, I brown five, seven day stage races throughout the year. So yeah, those races I do are typically anywhere from 20 to 35 hours of hard racing in a week. And you think, oh, like that's awesome. You're gonna lose weight and all this. But actually I almost 100% of the time I put on weight after a stage race. So I'll work so hard having a really clean diet and I'll go do this race and I come home and after, I mean, there's a, a large amount of inflammation and water retention from the travel and from the effort that lasts weeks after the event. But from this last race, I did this race called the Pioneer um, in February, which was a seven day race in New Zealand. And after the race, I allowed myself some, some extras, you know, some extra beer and some extra sweets and stuff like that, but nothing crazy. And I've been holding an extra five to seven pounds ever since then. And it's been a huge, huge source of frustration for me. And I, I do think that it is hormone um, induced. So I'm trying to figure that out. That's one of my challenges. And I talked to this interesting physiologist today and he works with some pro runners and people like that. And he said that it's actually quite common for athletes to actually gain weight after a really crazy hard stimulus on the body like a stage race because your body starts freaking out that maybe you haven't put in enough calories or maybe you're hypersensitive to the type of calories. So that's been just, yeah, as a, a ultra endurance athlete where you want to stay trim as much as possible. And I definitely do tend to put weight around my midsection, which is also a source of frustration. Yeah, and I think a lot of this goes back to um, physiologically how the body responds to famines. And uh, so you can kind of think of that type of seven day endurance race as, as a stretch of, of famine and the body shifts hormonally. If insulin is high or if cortisol is high, there's virtually no way to lose weight no matter how low the, the, the calories are. So the aftermath of some of these uh, endurance events or potentially even, even some of the training, if you're you know, training uh, in you know, these long blocks of time, could set the hormones in a way where they're trying to weather that storm and the body physiologically has been tricked in, into thinking, you know, food isn't there or nutrition isn't there and it's surging in, in these hormones. And that's where the math doesn't make sense. It's, you know, again, comes back to this idea that I'm looking at my calories, I'm looking at the quality of food, I'm looking at the ratio of, of lean proteins, and I'm also looking at the, um, you know, quality of carbohydrates coming in. These things shouldn't be spiking my insulin. These things shouldn't be doing this or doing that. Maybe the damage was done as, as a consequence of that event, and now we're, we're seeing some of the aftermath of that. And that could be, to some degree, the cost of doing business. Like, the there's obviously gonna be some- Dang it. Some, you know, as a professional athlete, there's always a cost to doing business. Uh, you know, if you're going to play in the CFL, which is my preferred form of football, is the Canadian football uh, version. Um, but I don't want to be offensive to the uh, to the to, to our American audience because uh, I love football of, of all genres, and we do watch a lot of NFL and NCAA as well. And football's football, so let's be honest. It's it's we're all we're all the same. But if you're going to play professional football, your head's probably going to take a little bit of a you know. There's a cost of, of playing that. Your body uh, you know, I've, I've had a number of friends who played in uh, professional football in Canada and 
they describe, you, you know, basically I'm in about 10 to 15 car accidents every Sunday. Uh, and then I do it the next Sunday, I'm in about 10 to 15 more car accidents. And then the next Sunday, I'm in about 10 to 15 more. I do that for about 18 to 20 weeks in a row. And then, <laughs> then I get to recover from those car accidents in between. So probably rambling on here a little bit on, on a whole other topic, but there's a bit of a cost to doing business. So some, some of that could be after an event, we see a little bit of weight gain, we see a shift that way. So now what do we do after that event to kind of take care of that so that hope isn't lost. This isn't, you know, I've, I've done this damage and every event I do, there's going to be a few extra pounds in this midsection. And how many events should I do this year? Because I don't know how many extra pounds I can, I can carry in there. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the greater good is for, you know, somebody like yourself to be able to do the things that, that you're doing, but we might have to, you know, look at an afterward strategy of, of saying, well, how do I now recover in a really healthy way? So I feel good. I can train for the next event, but my body composition recovers, you know, in a good way. Yeah. So shifting gears here a little bit, I got your book to feel well, improve your digestive system. And the entire book is awesome. It's an easy read. That doesn't mean that the contents are easy, but it, it was written very well so that somebody like myself can read it and understand it and interpret what's going on in the book. And I wanted to kind of go through it a little bit with you. So I know that you do a lot of digestive health in your practice. And the number one thing that I wanted to ask you because it's you're seeing it everywhere is candida, candida overgrowth. And how do you actually know? Because I know that when I did my test, there was not a crazy amount of candida, but there was a recommendation to take a few things to maybe kill some candida off in the digestive tract. And I wasn't having any symptoms of candida, but I know that there's a wide spectrum of candida symptoms. And I just was curious to get learn more about that. Yeah, it's such a great topic. And there's definitely some overlap on some levels with the adrenal glands where I can understand initially if there's some listeners with some cynicism around adrenals or with candida, because that's another one where like, Oh, everybody's got candida. So you, I can see a lot of, you know, medical doctors and I can also see a lot of, you know, people listening, you know, just throwing their arms up and saying, oh, okay, here we go. Everybody's got candida. Everybody's got adrenal fatigue, you know, and I'm skeptical of, of this. So I think we want to acknowledge that skepticism and say that's kind of based on some merit. I mean, I think too many uh, easy diagnosis of candida where did they really have candida? Uh, I think it's legitimate to, to sort of challenge that. So I pride myself in really diagnosing candida overgrowth when it's really there and not just throwing it out as a as a cop-out answer type of diagnosis so everybody's got a candida overgrowth so i think that's important to say at the beginning and maybe that helps give me a little bit of credibility you know <laughs> on that topic the other thing to acknowledge is we all have candida in us so the right way to frame it is really candida overgrowth as opposed to i've got candida or i've got a candida infection you know for probably all of our life we've had candida in various parts in our body we're happy to have it it's kind of a normal uh, healthy species but it's very opportunistic so and, and a lot of yeast and, and fungal species are opportunistic if you give it the right environment it'll outcompete where it's supposed to be so if we're eating too much 
much sugar, too much acid-rich foods, potentially eating food allergies that are then metabolizing and causing more you know, acidic environments or whatnot, the good species of bacteria that should be uh, there start to kind of lose their ground and an opportunistic species may you know, come in. And we see a lot of rebound candida overgrowth after antibiotic use. And uh, you know, I can prescribe antibiotics and, and we do when, when the, the time is necessary and right, but there's too much just willy-nilly antibiotic you know, prescription and uh, this recurrent cycle of antibiotic use and then yeast infection and then a bacterial infection, then a yeast infection and you know, kind of going back and forth. And candida may not have been the yeast that caused this initial you know, infection, but it's lurking in the background and it just can't control itself. It just wants to, it wants to expand its territory. And uh, so when it sees that opportunity, it, it goes there. So um, I think those are important factors to look at. And then from a diagnosis perspective, you can test for antibodies for candida to see if you're producing antibodies at a high level, which is highly suggestive that, that you have a candida overgrowth. Otherwise, why else would you be producing these really, really high levels of antibodies? And then the other way to, I think the, the other real legitimate way is to test through stool samples and do a stool culture and find out you know how much candida albicans is there and when people say candida most of the time they're kind of referring to candida albicans but there's other species of candida and then there's other things that are opportunistic and mimic symptoms of candida but they're not actually candida they, they're other types of yeast species or they're other type of bacterial species so I'm fully believe that I've had a number of patients where they thought they had candida, they've been treating with things that typically work with candida, but then when we do some stool testing to get the, the culture back, they actually have two or three other opportunistic infections that are not that virulent or, or like aggressive on their own, but the immune system has kind of dropped down, stressors have kind of gone up, it's created a great environment for these three things. They create symptoms that look a lot like candida, but they don't really respond to candida you know, therapy. So once we identify them properly and say, okay, here's the right things to treat it, we get some really good benefit that way. Yeah, interesting. Well, I've thought about this before, because whenever you're an endurance athlete, you end up taking in a lot of sugar while you're exercising. So like my diet, I actually hardly eat any sugar. I no processed sugar. I hardly eat any added sugar. So sweeteners are like maple syrup, which I'm sure that Candida still enjoys maple syrup almost as much as I do. But what does it do whenever you're trying to take in something like a goo or a gel while you're exercising, which is like a, a fructose based gel that you take in that helps boost your blood sugar and maintain blood sugar levels. Does candida actually mess up the absorption of putting sugar into your system while you're exercising? The, the first question I should ask is, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. So. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I said, is it? Yeah, yeah, I, exactly. Because yeah. I said fructose? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would like healthier forms of sugar and we'll put there's air quotes here of healthier forms of sugar like maple syrup let's say raw uh, unfiltered sugar versus table sugar on some level you could argue some healthier benefits or less less you know negative benefits but when it comes to candida overgrowth or other organisms that are fed by sugar it's really the same shit different pile okay. um, <laughs> you have to cuss to, to make that enough exactly yeah just same poop different pile just doesn't ring through as as clear yeah. So 
things that rapidly convert to sugar and you know honey is is such a better sugar you know to, to use as a you know a mild flavoring agent rather than uh than you know dumping in sugar but you know in in canada i think the national drink is a double double so if we explain that to our to yeah, our, I don't a, know what that is. A, you don't know what a double double no. is oh my goodness and you've been here for quite a while so it's true um she tries hard not to go through the doors of tim hortons so. yeah <laughs> that's right yeah so a double double is basically two sugar two cream in your coffee and what? and uh so i think how it originally what was the original size of a tim hortons you know regular coffee like a ten, 12 ounce 10, 10 to 12 ounces right so you know two sugar two cream and 10 ounces or 12 ounces would make a nice you know sweet creamy dessert type of type of coffee but nobody really drinks 10 to 12 ounces of coffee anymore you know and in fact they over the years they've changed the the, the sizes so if you have a double double and you're getting like a 16 ounce or a 20 ounce and probably 20 ounces would be the most popular tim hortons uh you know beverage and again not just like tim hortons and maybe they'll be a sponsor of yours at some point here yeah. um, I don't think so. <laughs> but a double double is not two sugar and two cream when you're having 16 ounces. You have to, you know, make that in proportion. So you have to kind of jack up that sugar. So it's it's more like having four teaspoons of sugar and, and cream and all that. And uh, uh, now the new wave is more the triple triple, which is uh, you know th three three sugar, exactly. three cream. A little cone of sugar that pokes out of your coffee. It's this little rim of no. I'm yeah. But we've got we have big gulps in the U.S. We got the triple triple in Canada. Right? Yeah. I forget what Beastie Boy song it was, but I believe there's a lyric in a Beastie Boy song that says, I like my sugar with coffee and cream. Oh, yeah. I like my sugar with coffee and cream. <laughs> yeah. So there are some people who like their sugar with coffee and cream, and that's important to them. And, you know, we're way off on, on this tangent of basically same shit, different piles. So we're, you know, uh, I'm going to have some honey. But if you're trying to make a double-double with honey uh, versus sugar, that is the same shit, different pile. Like, there's just, that's an excess of sugar. That's going to feed the wrong species. The good species that are there, there like the lactobacillus and, 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 and so forth, you know, they love fibers, they love uh, fruit pectins, the fructo-oligosaccharides, so things that are in abundance in a vegetarian diet, fruits and vegetables, and a lot of the plant-based proteins as well that, that are there, they provide those things. They're really happy, they feed those bacteria. When we have the sugar, it just feeds all the opportunistic uh, types of species. So I think that's the kind of one of those layers of the answer is, let's not kind of shift over and we're sweetening with better air quotes, you know, type of sugars, but the net effect is just too much sugar uh, coming into, into the body that way. So yeah, really important to, to make sure the flavor profile changes. And I found that most people, again, going back to our, you know, mutual love of coffee here, hormonally and, and cardiovascularly, it looks like the studies are kind of stacking up kind of favorably towards coffee and saying, if you're having coffee sometime in the morning, like one or two cups of coffee, you're probably at the very worst having a neutral effect on, on your cardiovascular and hormonal health, or you're potentially having a, a net benefit that way because you're kind of stimulating, getting circulation going, you're, you're, you're getting things to move. But people who get away from the double doubles and triple triples and start actually tasting good coffee, really appreciate it. There might be this disconnect of missing your, your sugar for a little bit, but then it starts to kick in and you say, it's been two weeks and I tried that double double again. And man, that was, that was not only was it sweet, but it didn't taste like coffee. The stuff that I've been drinking the last couple weeks, like that's, that's coffee. Yeah. In your book, I love that there is a lot about acidity and inflammation 
eating a plant-based diet. I've done a, a great amount of research and I know that Matt has as well. And I know that most plant-based foods are naturally anti-inflammatory and most of them are also alkaline. So why, like you hear about like alkaline water and you, you know, there was this uh, one point in time I had a, a sponsor approach me and they wanted me to take this thing called acid zapper, which helps neutralize acids while you're exercising. So why do we talk so much about acids and how do you know how acidic you are or how alkaline you need to be? Yeah, um, probably testing your urine pH is one you know really good indication of that. Um, looking at the function of the digestive system is another way because we are compartmentalized when it comes to pH levels. So our stomach is the most acidic place in the body. So that's a place that we actually want a high level of acidity. So we want our pH to be between one and two, very, very acidic place. And it's in our best interest for the alkalinity of our blood and, and the pH balance everywhere else if our stomach is in that, that proper acidic range. Because what every, every item of food we put into our mouth, as it goes from the esophagus into the stomach, it should go into this bat of acid uh, that would burn the Joker's face and, uh, you know. Or the Terminator. <laughs> or the Terminator, you know, whatever. And uh, if we don't have enough stomach acid, we, we won't really unravel our protein. So most of that initial protein breakdown from the food that we've chewed and then goes into the stomach is happening in the stomach. And if we don't have enough acid and we sacrifice protein breakdown in, in the stomach, then we basically send a mess to the small intestine and we ask it to kind of make up for that difference. But it doesn't have that kind of protein breakdown capacity that the stomach has. So we really need that acidic environment in the stomach in order to then send proper amino acids and, and dipeptides and tripeptides in very small protein molecules to the small intestine. The, the more we're sending that mess, then the more acidic the rest of the system is, is gonna be. So it kind of sounds a little backwards to think, well, if my stomach is not acidic enough, I'm gonna become more acidic. But it should make sense when you think about the fact that I'm becoming more inflamed and inflammation inherently is acidic. So the more work that the immune system has to come in and do breakdown and assist with the mess that uh, the stomach you know, sent to the, to the small intestine, the more acidic uh, we're gonna be in that area, not because the stomach was shooting acid into it, but because the stomach gave a mess and now our immune system is called to action and uh, inflammation is, is acidic that way. So uh, I think, some areas have been a little bit overemphasized, like, you know, alkaline water is the cure for everything. You know, alkaline, you know, the, the overimportance that of taking uh, alkalizing products. We don't want to make take things that are alkaline that will then make our stomach more alkaline because that will kind of perpetuate that problem. So not that alkaline water does that to the stomach, you know, per se, but some of the other supplements that are more about like, making everything alkaline, we just have to be careful we're not overdoing it and, and essentially sacrificing our stomach acid, making it more alkaline as the cost of or the collateral damage of, of, of that particular supplement. So yeah, the more acidic your stomach is in a good healthy way, you want to keep that acid in the stomach, you don't want it refluxing back up. So if there is a, a reflux, a heartburn type of issue, maybe initially we have to treat that, uh, you know, get that to clear up, let's heal the valve, keep the, the acid in the stomach, and, and that has a huge effect. So hopefully that doesn't sound oversimplified, but it's really profound. If the stomach is not acidic enough, the rest of the body will suffer and will have a difficult time with that alkaline acid balance. And then going back to the foods, most foods, like we kind of want to roughly eat about 75% of our foods on the alkaline side of things and maybe about 25% on, on the more acidic side of things. So what I focus with patients on a lot is what are the good acidic foods? 
Um, and those are the foods that have a high level of protein because, you know, again, protein is made of amino acids. Amino acids are inherently acidic. A lot of the vegetarian proteins are less acidic than, uh, than uh, you know, animal proteins just because of the nature of their, their composition. So one way to have a less acidic effect is to eat more of a plant-rich protein, uh, you know, type of diet. And uh, we think largely that, uh, you know, these amino acids are all broken down. So whether it comes from an animal or whether it comes from a vegetarian source, it theoretically shouldn't matter to the quality of protein because you're breaking it down to amino acids and, and, and absorbing it and bringing it in that way. So I think there's a lot of justification that a largely animal, sorry, largely plant-based diet has a lot of collateral benefits. And from an athletic perspective, you shouldn't have to be sacrificing your athletic quality because you're not eating red meat every day of the week or you're not eating chicken every day of the week and you, and you want to have more of a plant-based diet or have some kind of mix that way. So what about adding in like taking branch chain amino acid supplement or like sometimes during exercise, like I know I use Gu-Roctane as my sports nutrition go-to and that has amino acids in it. So do those supplements also cause extra acidity? Um, there, there probably will be a little bit of that. Yeah, I don't think of it too much uh, because I think the acidity that comes with that is really, really minimal uh, in that way. But the branch chain amino acids make a heck of a lot of sense because those are the ones that we use in really high levels for this type of training and, and recovery and also for the GI health uh, as well too, which we'll go into in a sec. But to me, it makes a lot of sense. You have to feed yourself. When you're training at a high, high level like, like you do, you have to treat yourself in a different way than somebody who's you know working nine to five and you know maybe doing a little bit of extra exercise and they're doing it more for health benefits and just you know get out there and, and, and doing things. So not to slag anybody who's not training at the level that you're training at, but, <laughs> but you know, um, you're a high performance machine on some level. So you have to treat yourself like a high performance machine and make sure that you're not running out of really important nutrients and things like the branch chain amino acids and then uh, glutamine uh, as well too are of limited supply it doesn't matter too much whether you're having a plant you know if you're vegan and you're totally avoiding you know animal proteins or whether animal proteins are in there there's a competition the more training you're doing your muscles are requiring high levels of branch chain amino acids and and other amino acids like glutamine but your digestive tract also needs them so we, we have to most likely increase those levels so that we get them to the muscles and and because uh, if we don't have enough coming in our digestive system unfortunately is going to lose our bodies are really built on fight or flight we first of all have to survive then we can digest food we survive then we can have sex um, you know we, we survive then we can uh, you know take care of other things you know going on that way so if we're training at a high level and there's a limited supply of glutamine or branch chain amino acids your muscles are going to get it athletically you're going to do okay and then you have chronic digestive issues and that's where there's a higher rate of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis for especially the power lifters uh, so maybe not quite our audience here but but the people who are really training at that high power lifting and, and bodybuilding body sculpting you know type of competition so I think yeah branch chain amino acids glutamine they make a lot of sense and any little bit of acidity that comes with it is yeah not not an issue Okay, yeah, and just just my brain's kind of working here, and I want. I can about, see that. <laughs> no, I, I want to talk about the H the HCL hydrochloric acid challenge in a minute because that's in your book, and I know that Matt has is still needing to kind of try that out. But we we're just talking about the acidity, the pH in the stomach, and we want to support our gut flora with probiotics. And I know that our gut flora we're more 
gut flora bacteria than we are human cells, which is, yes. it's like, we're like 10 pounds of, of actual bacteria. I thought I read somewhere. And is it, it's like eight to one or I, you could probably tell me what those actual stats are. So supporting our microbiome with positive species. So I know for me, I drink a lot of kombucha to try and make sure that I'm nourishing these probiotics in my diet because it's naturally high in leafy greens and fruits and vegetables. That's the prebiotic, which is the food for all these awesome probiotics. But when you're dropping in kombucha or say you're just taking a probiotic pill into your stomach, is it actually getting through the acidic environment into your intestines? Yeah, you know what, um, great question. Another really good fundamental question, and that can come back to the quality of the supplement and, and knowing the, the research around it. So a good probiotic should be designed to make it through the stomach acid. Uh, there's an inherent flaw if it wasn't designed that way. So, you, you know, we make sure anything that we, you know, carry or recommend at a health food store or something like that makes sense. It's designed, you know, to get through that way. So, you know, the, the bacteria are on such a microscopic level that you can't see it. So whether the supplement uh, of probiotic is a powder, a capsule, a liquid, or even like a, um, a food-based type of thing like kombucha or kefir, you know, that type of thing, you're not going to see, oh, it's in a little coating there. It's good. I can, I can verify with my own eyes that it's going to make it through the stomach acid. So yeah, making sure that it's a quality uh, product that, you know, can, can back up to that claim is a big thing. So making that assumption that the probiotic you're taking will pass through the stomach without any significant, you know, denaturing and, and killing and all, and all that, uh, you know, really key. And one of the big things too, if we go, go back to like the adrenal system stress levels is uh, there's something called sympathetic tone and, and uh, that fight or flight type of system, the state of the bacteria and yeast and the health of our, our microbiota and flora in, in our GI tract can be hugely impacted by our ability to cope with stress, how well we're sleeping at night. So we can, we can often really neglect that, that interconnection that way. And cravings too. <laughs> and cravings, and then, and then the vice versa. So the bacteria inside our large intestine are making a lot of products that are very similar to neurotransmitters and hormones, and there's a lot of mimicking effect. A lot of the serotonin we make in our body is made in our GI tract. Uh -huh. One of the main questions going on in this realm of things is you've got this concept called the blood-brain barrier. So some molecules theoretically don't cross the blood-brain barrier. And so serotonin made in the GI tract is really, really controversial right now in the sense that uh, some practitioners really believe that we should be treating the GI tract, improving the serotonin production there, because somehow that has effect on the uh, the central nervous system and, and does a lot of benefits. And maybe we don't need to be on on antidepressants uh, as much as being prescribed if we if we fix the serotonin in the GI tract. Um, some people uh, in in healthcare find that to be um, not valid because of the blood-brain barrier and it doesn't theoretically doesn't cross over so but clinically you'll see a lot of people who respond really well and they feel big emotional uplifts when their gi tract starts functioning better and you can see in their systemic levels of serotonin are going in the right direction so you know what what's going on so there's a there's a, a back and forth of my nervous system's impact on what kind of life is in my gi tract and then what kind of life is in my GI tract might have a big impact as to my nervous system, my stress coping uh, mechanisms and, and all that type of thing. Yeah, I think one of the biggest research things of our time right now is about the gut biome and the GI tract because I think a lot of times, at least in, in my past until the last few years, 
no one really had talked about that stuff. And it seems like everywhere I turn now, there's just tons of information about supporting your, your gut flora and making sure that you're healthy there. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes back to what you said there too, is there's more of them in us than us in us. You know, so there's just so much bacteria inside our GI tract and also coating our skin. And a lot of things that we give credit to our own immune system are actually the interplay between uh, other species and our immune system and how they communicate and they share these roles. So it's really hard to separate things and say that this species does this, this species does that because there's, there's such an interplay. And the reality too, which is which is kind of crazy, is we all have, like inside your body, are species that exist nowhere else other than inside your own body. Uh, and, and inside mine, there are, there are species that exist that, you know, that, you know they're, they're cousins, they're relatives, but we have some unique life forms that are just unique to our own bodies. So it's so complicated that it, it's almost like the concept of infinity. You know, when you really think of infinity, your head might explode, <laughs> you know, and you start having difficulty explaining some of these types of concepts. If you have children and, and they start hitting ages of like five, six, seven, and they've got some really good questions and, you know, dad, what's infinity? How do you explain infinity? Oh my goodness, I, I don't know. Uh, a really good question my son asked me when he was five about six months ago was, what's rock and roll? Like, I want to know what rock and roll is. You know, I can handle that question because I thought, okay, this is really easy. The best way to explain what rock and roll is, is I'm going to show you a video of Led Zeppelin from 1972 <laughs> and just look at Robert Plant on stage and just look at the whole band going and, and listen to that. And uh, so I introduced them to Led Zeppelin about six months ago. And, and now every time we're in the car, we have to play Dazed and Confused. And then, and then we have to play Ramble On afterwards. And there's kind of a series of events that, uh, that has to be played. So I know that's way off topic, but uh, yeah, some of these concepts like in our body of like just how small of a scale things happen, just how, how complicated the interplay is and how much we don't really know of these details. We, we know the bigger concept of this is important. The quality of life inside of us has such a huge effect on our overall quality of life and how this organ system functions. But, uh, you know, hopefully in 50 years, we'll look back and say, boy, we were real idiots at that point in time. We, we didn't really know, you know, what was going on. And, and I know a lot of the future is going to be instead of maybe the way we look at antibiotics, like, well, we'll take this antibiotic for this condition and this antibiotic for that one. And if this one doesn't work, then we'll use this antibiotic. I think a lot of the future is going to be more like on the probiotic side of things where these species we want to take in, in these types of conditions or this underlying mechanism is happening. So let's take these species. Whereas right now, even with the advanced testing that we can run, it'll show us that we're low in this species, low in that species. So let's just take that species very much like a cookie cutter approach that, oh, I'm low in this, so I'll just take more of it and I will you know, take care of the issue. I think as we go through the, the, the next few decades, we'll be on a whole different level of, of improving our GI uh, flora and, and, and whatnot. Awesome. Well, I think we should probably start wrapping this thing up. I'm going to keep you here all night and it'd be really easy to, to keep going. And there's so much more that we didn't get to. So maybe we can have you back uh, as a guest if you're up for it at a later date. And I can ramble on. That's right. It sounds good. Ramble. And maybe we'll uh, serenade you with our guitars in here. I have to learn that one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to find out what your five-year-olds are or seven or 10-year-olds music preferences so we can exactly corrupt them appropriately <laughs> well you must know how to play stairway to heaven because that's part of like you have to know how to play that if you have a guitar it's like you know part of your your basic guitar lessons i, I actually don't know how to play it on guitar but i can play it on flute which is like 
the opposite. Way cooler, like Ron Burgundy. That's right. Ron Burgundy, Burgundy for yeah, sure. Jethro Tull style. I actually yeah. saw Jethro Tull. Like my dad, yes. I went, I went in high school with my dad to see Jethro Tull, and I was probably the only like teenage person in that room. But it was me and all the old guys, and yeah, Ian Anderson was ripping it up on the flute, and I felt cool. Even though it probably was really not cool to be at Jethro Tull, but I, I still love Jethro Tull. That, I mean, how how can you not? I, you know, I did recently listen to a song uh, with my wife, and I think it was Aqualung. And when you really when you listen to the lyrics of it, it's it's sort of weird, and disturbing a little bit as well too. And yeah, it yeah. Is. <laughs> yeah, who knows what he was on, or what his what? Who knows what his microbiome was made out of? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there may be some creativity that comes with an imbalanced microbiome. That there, <laughs> So what's a great way for people to get a hold of you? And if people want to buy your book, what's a good way to get a hold of that? Yeah, I think a great way is uh, to go to the to my website, which is uh, www.drbrentbarlownd, as in naturopathicdoctor.com. Um, and that has all, all of my contact uh, information there. There's some good resources on the website. There's some good videos of, of doing some of the hands-on therapies that I do. And uh, yeah, some good links and good resources for people to, to check out. I love getting email inquiries. I work with a lot of people who are out of province uh, and out of my jurisdiction so I, I'm very comfortable you know chatting with people um, you know through Skype or through phone uh, you know consultations and uh, you know going that way so but yeah you can start with an email and uh, send an interesting question and we'll, we'll see where it goes from there yeah awesome I know that a lot of people that follow me also email me lots of questions so I, I highly encourage them to email you you're such a great reference and it's so awesome to hear a different way of approaching healthcare. Um, I'm fully on board with treating the body with nutrition and vitamins compared to treating it with standard antibiotics or drugs. And I'll put your website in the, a link to the website in the show notes. And I'll also put a link to a table that's in your book talking about acidic versus alkaline foods. And those are primarily made of whole foods. So that's why eliminating processed foods is another great way, thing for people to do because it's highly acidic food. So that'll be a good starting point for people and hopefully they can move forward getting healthier. And I know it's been really helpful for me, not only as an athlete, but just as a human to be really focused and getting a bunch of different information on how to take care of yourself. And really, as my friend and previous podcast guest, Dr. Kime says, she says, it takes a village to, to support yourself. And it really, truly does. So thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks to Matt for joining us. And I think we might have some more beer to drink. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. I'd love to come back anytime. All right. See you guys later. Oh, that was a blast with Dr. Barlow. I learned lots of new things today, and I hope that you did too. I was also really thankful that Matt could join for the podcast today. I'm hoping he can be around for some of the other ones as well because he's so much fun to be around. And I better think that because I'm his wife. <laughs> if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes and share it with your friends. That helps us out a lot. I also have a Patreon page and you can find that in the show notes or on my website under the podcast tab. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's basically a site where you can donate as little as a dollar per month to somebody's work to help them fund and improve on what they're doing. And typically with certain dollar amounts, you actually get some fun things in return. Things are about to get really busy for me. I have a stage race in Pennsylvania called the Transylvania Epic at the end of May a trip to New York City, and also a trip to Denver, Colorado. And I'm really looking forward to getting back there. I used to live in Boulder for eight years and I can't wait to see all of my friends. 
Wishing you guys all the best success in your training and all of your adventures. And we will see you back here next week.